Hello and welcome to Farmerama. Happy solstice. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, the long nights are a time for soup and socializing. This month, we begin hearing about the people of Turtle Island, where it is and what they stand for. Then, we're off to Indonesia, where a slow food presidium has been set up with local farmers to celebrate the incredible biodiversity of bananas. We're in North Dakota to hear from one of the leading voices of regenerative farming, and we finish up in Peterborough in the UK to get an end-of-year update from our regular market gardening reporter. At Slow Food Terra Madre, over 160 countries and communities are represented. They all take part in the Salone del Gusto, where they present food and wares from their country to share their culture, traditions, and farming practices. This year, for the first time ever, the people of Turtle Island were represented under their own banner. We spoke to Lorraine Ganaladogues Gray. In my Mohawk name, Ganaladogues, it means she takes the leaf out of the water, and I'm Turtle Clan. Yeah, so I'm a Mohawk woman from the Ganawage Mohawk Reservation near Montreal. That's where my family is from. But I live in New Mexico. My first experience with slow food was in 2006 when I was living on the Akwazasne Mohawk Reservation and Winona LaDuc, who I think the world knows from all of her activism work, selected me to be part of a delegation here of indigenous people to be present at the Slow Food Terra Madre Conference in 2006. And so it's from there that I learned about um, the work that Slow Food is doing. We were under the USA, but the USA wasn't addressing our needs as indigenous people, the USA um, Association. So it was always Winona's dream to start our own association as Slow Food Turtle Island that would represent the 500 nations of indigenous people in the United States plus Canada and Mexico. And Turtle Island is what a lot of indigenous people call the continent are called the continent of North America before the um, invasion of Europeans. Um, trying to be polite about that. So um, that's why we are calling ourselves Slow Food Turtle Island, because it's representing the indigenous people and we are addressing our needs. For my people, it's true. It's not for all nations of indigenous people, but many, that we called the land Turtle Island. And for our creation story, there's a whole sky world up there of our people. And at one point, a tree was pulled out of the ground, which revealed a hole to the world below. And Sky Woman lost her balance and fell through that hole. At that time, what we know as Earth was just a ball of water and there was no place for her to land. But the sea creatures saw that she was falling and they tried to make a place for her. Animals dove down to the bottom of the ocean and pulled up earth and put it on a turtle's back. And as, as that happened, the land started to form. And the birds wanted to break her fall, so they flew up and they caught her and rested her gently on the back of the turtle, and that's where Turtle Island began. And the rest of the people emerged from her. 
So my organization now that I work with is the Four Bridges Traveling Permaculture Institute and we're based in New Mexico but we do work around the U.S. and other parts of the world, primarily South America and Mexico. At our educational farm in New Mexico we work with a lot of youth and special needs youth and other people and so we brought with us um, a salsa that we made from ingredients on the farm, tomatoes and chili and and things like that. We also brought some maple syrup, which is from my original community, and we're um, working to get the maple syrup recognized in the Ark of Taste as an original. For us, it's considered a medicine, um, but for people to understand that that maple syrup came from our people. There's so many Americans and Canadians that are marketing it for the money, but it's really a, a sacred medicine for us, and it came from our people and other indigenous nations where maple trees grow. And then we also brought a healing salve with us from herbs that grow on our farm. I mean, it is edible, but not recommended to eat, but used for skin and uh, issues like that. We practice a lot of what's now called permaculture, but it's the way that our people always traditionally grew. And being at one with the earth, we don't use chemicals or uh, any kind of chemical fertilizers or insecticides or herbicides or anything like that and we have a lot of teaching gardens from different places in the world we have something called a waffle garden which is a Zuni method of growing we have terrace gardens like they have in the Andes mountains of Peru and Bolivia we have a three sisters garden that we grow which is corn beans and squash that's a very special place and people from all over the world come to visit our farm to learn a little bit and to be a part of the work that we do. For me and my people, at the beginning of a planting season, we have a special ceremony, it's a seed ceremony. We sing to our seeds and we sing to our plants. Can I sing a song? Okay. So the songs that we sing encourage the seeds to grow and then we also sing them when we're cultivating in the garden, so to encourage the plants to grow. And then we also sing at harvest to thank the plants for, for providing us some food. I'm just gonna sing one short little song. In English, the meaning is, um, this seed is a good seed. <clears throat> okay. Gana hione ganaha. Gana hione ganaha. Gana hio ne ganaha, gana hio ne ganaha. This seed is a good seed. That's one of many seed songs that we sing. It's all about intention. So someone might say, wow, you could sing those songs on a CD and make a lot of money. But then that's the bad intention, right? So I have children who come to the farm. Some are uh, native children and some are non-native. And that particular song, it's a very simple one because it's really just a couple of words. And I teach those children that song so that they can also have a little bit of a spirituality and appreciation of where their food comes from. But if you can't learn that song or you don't feel like it's appropriate to use that song, then you can choose any song that is meaningful to you to sing to your plants. Because what I teach is that, you know, there's a lot of vegetarians who say they don't want to eat an animal because it had a life and it had a, a mother and it had a face. But plants are also life 
and they had mothers, and they have a face, and they have a voice, and they have feelings, and they hear you, and they know. We always say, when you're in the garden, don't yell, don't fight, because those plants can feel that, and that bad medicine is going to go into those plants. When you're in your garden, to be happy and have good intentions, and even if it's a rock song, if it's a happy rock song, your plants will like it. Earlier this month, Rebel Kitchen celebrated World Soil Day by sharing about the different regenerative agriculture initiatives they support as part of their 1% for the Planet commitment. You can find a link to their posts on our socials or head to rebelkitchen.com to read more. One of Slow Food International's many brilliant initiatives are the Slow Food Presidia, the Presidia are local projects that work to secure a viable future for traditional or unique foods. To quote Slow Food, they sustain quality production at risk of extinction, protect unique regions and ecosystems, recover traditional processing methods, and safeguard native breeds and local plant varieties. For example, they might connect local farmers with chefs and researchers so they can work together to preserve and share the story of a particular food. There are now more than 500 Presidia worldwide, representing over 13,000 producers. When most of us in Europe or North America talk about bananas, we almost certainly mean the Cavendish banana, as it accounts for 99% of all global banana exports. But the fact that we've come to see it as the standard banana is a prime example of the loss of diversity in our food system. And it's a lesson in just how vulnerable that can leave us, as vast banana plantations around the world are being wiped out by a new fungus. We were amazed to hear that on the island of Java in Indonesia, they have more than 20 types of banana, or pisang, as they are known locally. At the Salone del Gusto, I tasted both fresh bananas and the cooked plantains, and my mind was blown by all the different flavors and colors. It was truly amazing. Java-based local food researcher Amalia Kanima is working with seven farmers who are continuing to grow a diverse range of banana varieties as part of the Heritage Yogyakarta Banana Varieties Presidium. Part of her work involves trying out different recipes to get local young people excited about these bananas. The Presidium meets every 40 days to share tips, for example, using ginger and turmeric to keep pests away, which is a traditional local technique. Hello, my name is Samalia. I'm from, from Indonesia, a special from the one of the five peaks island, uh, Java Island. And I'm from the Yogyakarta. Yogyakarta is southern area from central Java. I'm a coordinator of the Banana Presidia based on the sustainable agriculture. In the area, we have uh, more than uh, 12 uh, kinds of banana. But in traditional market, Especially in Java, we have more than 20 to 25 kind of banana. Compared with the modern supermarket, just we found one. A banana in Indonesia, the name is a pisang. 
I, I want to introduce to all people about the pisang, especially young generation in Indonesia. Because Indonesia is mega biodiversity number second after Brazil. Yeah, and we have uh, number three on a population in the world. 70% uh, is young generation. Yeah. In Indonesia, banana is uh, divided about uh, two, uh, two kinds. The one is the third banana is uh, you can get easy uh, fresh banana to eat and the others is a, a plantain a banana. You must uh, process. Uh, with the program with the Slow Food International, with the Presidia, we hope uh, uh, socialization, promotion and empowering the farmer in the village, especially the young farmer that we are proud about the biodiversity, especially uh, banana, because Indonesia is uh, in the uh, general theory the one uh, premier uh, center of the biogeographical origin of banana, besides Philippines and Papua New Guinea. And we hope with the attended in Salona del Gusto, we hope with the, all the people around the world and the farmer in, in Indonesia, we are proud about that. Yeah. In Indonesia, a farmer is not a good position in the structure about the social culture. Because in Indonesia, farming is a, a one part of the, the poorest. The people farmer is more than 60 years age about the farmer get the young generation enjoy because the next generation the farmer is uh, one position the care of the world we don't currently have many presidia in the uk and we're planning to recommend a few so watch this space if there's anything you think needs to be recognized and celebrated where you live then get in touch with Slow Food International. Many of you may well have heard of Gabe Brown. He's a hugely influential figure in the regenerative agriculture movement, and he's the author of Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. Gabe took over the running of his family's farm in North Dakota in 1991. In the years 1995 to 1997, hailstorms had a devastating impact on the farm's crops. It was then that Gabe decided to start putting regenerative agriculture ideas into practice. Today, the Browns run a 5,000-acre operation with soil health at its heart. You do definitely notice that the crops on my land are greener and we tend to have more total biomass growth, especially on our pasture land, as compared to neighboring lands. That is all due to the resiliency we've built over time in our soils. The fact that we've been able to increase both water infiltration rates and water holding capacity. I contend that farmers and ranchers, to some extent, create their own weather extremes. And by that, I mean uh, droughts are more pronounced if they don't have healthy enough soils. 
And also, if you're in an area that's prone to excess moisture, you're going to notice the ramifications of that. Uh, because water is not able to infiltrate and move throughout the soil profile. So it ponds on the surface and they end up uh, potentially losing their crops and production because of that also. Gabe has achieved this soil resiliency through a number of regenerative methods. He has a zero-till policy on his ranch to ensure that the microorganisms in the soil stay alive and healthy. He doesn't use synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, or fungicides on his land. He maintains diversity in his crops, including cover crops, which provide armor to the soil, preventing degradation. And he uses high-density grazing methods with his cattle, who leave plenty of residue to feed the mouths under the soil's surface. Gay believes these methods play a crucial role in shaping our ecosystems for the better. He therefore argues that farmers should be compensated for the ecological services they provide, which would incentivize them to be more likely to take up regenerative farming methods. There is no doubt that farmers provide greater ecological services than <laughs> almost anyone else. There's no doubt in my mind that farming and ranching is key to reversing the trends we're seeing uh, occurring in our ecosystems. One of the things I'm involved with, and I describe a bit in my book, is a company called Landstream that is uh, quantifying these ecological services. In other words, the amount of, of carbon that we're pulling out of the atmosphere and pumping into the soils, it's uh, quantifying the amount of rainfall that we can infiltrate into our soils and then hold there via the organic matter levels in our soils. And I think it's critical. One of the one of the reasons I became involved with Landstream is because we just don't have that data available. There's no real good data out there showing that if we use these regenerative practices, it'll will amount to X, whether it be so many tons of carbon per hectare or or so many more inches of available moisture and all of this is critical to society as a whole not to mention the fact that that we can grow higher nutrient dense foods which also benefits society but it's not just ecological services that the browns ranch seeks to provide gabe is also focused on the economic and community benefits that his work has in the United States, last figures I heard, about 12.6 cents out of every food dollar actually ends up in the farmer or rancher's pocket. The only way we're going to be able to change that is by taking these matters into our own hands and bringing it back to a more localized level. Businesses that are involved in beef slaughter actually slaughter well over 80 plus percent of the beef in the country. And you know, that's one of the problems with this whole production model. We're way too monoculture-based, and we have the majority, the size, the capability in the hands of very, very few. We market the majority of our products within a 200-mile radius of our ranch. We would like to shrink that and actually get that down to within 25 miles of our ranch. The benefits of that are uh, 
for one, society is supporting the local economy. We as farmers are supporting the local economy. You look at our small slaughter facility located in a town of 180 people. Well, we provide seven full-time jobs in that small town. That's a lot in a small town. It means a lot to that community, plus the traffic in and out of that community. You know, we bring business to that community. The consumers get to know their farmer. You know, I mentioned in the book that we are not certified organic because I just don't see any economic benefit to myself to being so. We're getting as high as of prices for our crops as it would be if we're, we were certified. But what I'm getting at is our customers are our certification. And by selling in a more localized environment, consumers get to know the farmer. They are the third-party verifier, so to speak. Uh, we have an open-door policy on our ranch. Anyone can come out here at any time and look at anything they want. I have absolutely no problem. In fact, I encourage our customers to see what we're doing on the operation. If we go to a more localized type of a production model, you build this transparency and this trust. And that's a good thing for all involved. It also would help the consuming public realize all the benefits that we're providing to society through carbon cycling, through cleaner water, cleaner air. We as farmers and ranchers need to realize that every single thing we do has compounding and cascading effects. Now, these effects may be either positive or they may be negative. And so often I see in production agriculture that a producer is in this very narrow mindset where they only look at what are the ramifications of this one thing that I'm doing on my operation today to my operation. But we need to realize that there's much, much bigger, larger, broader implications from every single thing we do, whether it be on the water cycle, the mineral cycle, on human health with nutrient density, on the carbon cycle with climate change. We have to realize that as producers. And, you know, this journey I've been on has really made me realize that we're all in this together and everything I do as a producer affects multiple individuals, not only in my lifetime, but for future generations to come. So how does Gabe see this kind of agriculture being developed further in the future? And what does he intend for the development of his ranch? I often get criticized. People say, yeah, Gabe, but if everybody did that, you know, it, it wouldn't be a, as profitable and wouldn't be as good. And I disagree because one of the things in agriculture we're seeing, especially here in the United States, farms and ranches are way too large. And I talk in my book how we have shrunk the size of our operation and we're continuing to actually get smaller. I would rather see more people on the land. That's one of the reasons we have the internship program is to help the next generation get started. Let's get as many people involved in production agriculture as we can, build these relationships, build community, and better the environment. How many people would be exposed to four years of natural disasters and then given the opportunity to learn and to grow and, and to 
make a profitable business, and then be able to go out and share that. And I think what I tend to do is give other farmers, ranchers, and consumers hope, hope that we can change this degradation. And I tell people that, you know, I've been on thousands of operations all over the world, and I have never, ever been on a single operation, including my own, that's not degraded. But the fact of the matter is it gives us hope in that we can regenerate these soils. And it's changed my outlook in life in the way that it's one now of hope. I tell people I used to wake up every morning trying to decide what I was going to kill that day. Was it going to be a weed? Was it going to be a pest? Was it going to be a fungal disease? I was going to kill something. Now I wake up every day. How do I get more life on my operation? How do I share what we're doing on our operation with the world in order to give others hope and to advance all of agriculture into this type of a regenerative production model. This interview was recorded by Marianne Landsattel and the feature was edited and written by Susie McCarthy. Joel Rodker got in touch with us over a year ago and invited us to join him on his journey of setting up a market garden. For the last year, he sent us regular diary recordings, which we've shared with you on the show. Here, Joel reflects on his first year of growing and weighs the ups and downs of what has been a challenging but rewarding year. Hello everybody, this is Joel doing another recording for the Farmerama podcast. I'm running a market garden at the Harvest Barn farm shop just outside Peterborough. It's been just over a year since I started growing at the market garden at Harvest Barn farm shop. Um, it's been a very eventful year, very challenging, very rewarding, although I would say the challenges have outweighed the rewards, but I'm still enthusiastic the biggest challenges have been a combination of marketing and growing. Um, I feel like I've learned as much about growing this year as I have in the last 20 years. And I thought I knew quite a lot before, but it's been a pretty intense learning curve. Um, and I didn't have any experience of marketing before now, apart from trying to encourage year nine students to take geography as a GCSE and selling green cornflake cake outside my parents' house as a nine-year-old. I mean, I guess the growing challenges are fairly obvious. We've had problems with irrigation this year because it was so hot and I was only just starting to get my irrigation system set up. So for the beginning of the season, I was using watering cans. We've had a big battle with caterpillars. A lot of my brassicas were unsellable because of caterpillar damage. There were a few other pests. I didn't have any deer, rabbit, bird damage really, but the watering and some issues with the soil which I haven't really resolved and the caterpillars um, proved quite difficult. So that obviously had a big impact on my sales because I didn't have the quantity and the quality that I would have liked. A lot of produce went to waste because I just couldn't sell it um, and I didn't have enough in a lot of cases to offer um, produce to places who need a consistent regular supply of produce. But I was able to sell to the farm shop and to people in London and Norwich and have just started to sell to people locally. So there are signs of my own market streams 
developing in a positive way. Um, but the marketing was also a big challenge. Um, and in terms of marketing, the, the main issues for me were finding people that wanted to buy the produce, um, given that I didn't have good internet access on site and the time was limited, establishing a relationship with customers, so going to meet them, talking to them, finding out what they wanted, working out prices has taken a long time, um, having the right quantities so I don't have too much uh, that goes to waste and I'm wasting all the time growing produce which I can't sell but not having such a small amount that I then can't go to customers and say I'm going to have this amount of kale for the next few months. Um, decisions about delivery logistics and when it's worth delivering small quantities is a dilemma that I really have sort of had to do by trial and error really and work out what is cost effective and time efficient but I am saying yes to most people at the moment because I feel I need to establish myself and get a customer base and get experience um my sort of emotional well-being and mental health has been a big issue I've been quite lonely a lot of this year because I don't know people in the area um it's been difficult to get out and meet people and I'm spending most of the time on my own on the land it's difficult to get the right balance between time on the land and um commitments to my personal and f and family commitments so trying to work out the the right balance to to make the farm successful but always also keep myself sane has been quite a challenge so in terms of the future what do i need to do find more customers plan better succession so i've got a wider range or a greater quantity of produce coming through there aren't gaps in the produce probably grow more of each crop and and maybe actually less variety so that it's less complication and less time involved it has been great this year to be doing what i've dreamed of doing which is to be growing food to provide local people with produce that is healthy and organically grown and learn about managing the soil and managing crops there's been some really great produce come out of the market garden, sunflowers, some great salads, peppers, tomatoes, a lot of herbs. And that's been really rewarding to be able to see that and grow it and get money back for it. So I am enthusiastic about the future. I, I'm very keen to keep learning about growing and and finding the right way to grow these crops efficiently. And I'm really keen to to prove if possible that it is possible to make a decent living on a small area of land growing vegetables um, but that is yet to be proved but for that to be sustainable for it to work I need to have a regular cash flow and at the moment the money coming in from what I'm selling is not enough to provide me with a livelihood so I have had to top that up with supply teaching uh, and hopefully next year I will have less expenditure and more income, and that would be great. But um, it's not certain yet that I can make enough money to give me a living before it becomes financially um, unviable. It's been great sharing this year's journey with you. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Uh, look forward to sharing more about next year's season and seeing what successes I can achieve building on this year's hard work and learning 
and look forward to hearing from you if you've got any comments or questions. Thank you very much. Bye. as always, to Joel. You can listen back to all of Joel's updates on the Farmerama SoundCloud page. We haven't been able to include all of them on our monthly show or on the main podcast feed, so it's well worth having a look, especially if you're thinking of setting up a market garden yourself. We've pulled all the diary entries together into a single playlist, so they're really easy for you to find. Thank you all for listening to this episode and for all your support over the year. We've grown in a lot of ways as a team at Farmerama and we're enjoying making the program more than ever. And we're more grateful than ever for all you guys listening and sending in requests and ideas. We really do appreciate your contact, so thank you so much. This month's episode was made by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. This week we had reporting and editing from Marianne Lanzettel and Susie McCarthy. The Farmerama theme music is by Owen Barrett. Thanks, as always, to our community team, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. Toodaloo!